The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is a People's History of Kansas City from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. So, walking by P.F. Chang's, walking on the plaza. We're exploring the history of a place, a unique shopping destination, the Country Club Plaza. There's no place really quite like it in the world. Which is why we sent our intern, Hannah Bailey, out to explore right as the world's first ever uniformly planned automobile-oriented regional shopping center turns 100 years old. And what Hannah found is that the plaza evokes a lot of memories and emotions for people around here. I was the nostalgia correspondent. I have great memories of the plaza. Around Christmas time, obviously, we have the plaza lights. I even remember the first time coming to see the Christmas lights, like the plaza lights with my dad. Like that was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen before. So I'm from Bosnia. Like I was born there and like I know like we have like a big community here in Kansas City and we love to like go to the plaza. And I remember when I was little, my dad would take me like every weekend just to get some fresh air. There was a restaurant, it was called Poochie's back in the dinosaur days. And that was where you went to have all you could eat. And then uh, Swinson's ice cream. Our mother played tennis at the tennis courts many, many years ago, so tomorrow would be our 89th birthday, so we're down here at the plaza celebrating this birthday in her honor. You came to the plaza to celebrate her birthday? That's amazing. I love the bunnies. I'm so happy that they're back. We would go there every year and take pictures with them. A friend of mine came up from Texas and we were walking around the plaza and he says, you know, this is such an unusual downtown. And I had to inform him this wasn't our downtown. <laughs> Got engaged on the plaza, have celebrated anniversaries on the plaza. Hannah says a lot of people wanted to talk about how the plaza had changed. Are there any stores you miss that aren't there anymore, or restaurants? Halls, a lovely department store, we really miss that. We and have that futuristic store with all the cool stuff. Yes. Sharper Image. Sharper Image. Baldwin was easily one of my favorite stores ever, like, yeah, like ever, ever. You know the men's stores, Wolf Brothers and Jack Henry's. I, I, I miss the old um, specialty stores like that. Hartsfeld's was a wonderful store. I tell you what, all the stores that are gone, the old-fashioned stores, I miss them. Brooks Brothers, all that stuff is being, being done online. There's no doubt that the shopping destination has changed a lot over the years. But all of these changes have a lot of folks wondering. What's in store for the future of the plaza? It's still very cool, but, but I kind of miss the old plaza. I do hope that it's locally owned and that it continues to be a place that brings unique concepts to Kansas City. The plaza does hold a special place in the hearts of a lot of Kansas Cityans. But we can't tell this story without digging into the complicated and lasting legacy of its creator, J.C. Nichols a figure who has historically been both highly celebrated for his vision for creating suburban-style neighborhoods and deeply criticized for his divisive, racist real estate practices. J.C. Nichols epitomized the idea of what is good for Kansas City is good for J.C. Nichols. They thought he was crazy. Why would you take all this time and energy to, to try to revive something that's just really not almost usable? I mean, 
he saw something different there than most people. J.C. Nichols was a terribly racist person. You know, the power of J.C. Nichols, you know, it got into my, you know, my uh, my spirit. It was like something I couldn't let go of. We're going to get into all of it right after this. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Wanna hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org slash radioactive. Do you say plaza or plaza? (laughs) I say plaza. I say the plaza. I say the plaza, but some of my siblings say the plaza. (laughs) Plaza, plaza, I don't know, yeah. Whatever I heard last person say, it's kind of like what I have in my brain. How do you say it? I say plaza. I'm from here. I think the people from here say plaza. Now that I'm hearing it, I'm like, I would never say plaza, because it just doesn't sound right in my, coming out of my mouth. It's funny because as a Kansas Cityan, I pronounce it plaza with that super hard A, even though I know it's a Spanish word and the Spanish pronunciation is plaza. And when I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I'd call their downtown plaza, but here I say plaza. But anyways, yeah, we'll hear more from our intern, Hannah Bailey, and all the people she talked to on the streets a little later. But first, let's go back in time to the story of the man behind this whole thing, J.C. Nichols. For local historian Bill Worley, the history of the Country Club Plaza and J.C. has become a bit of a lifelong journey. It's a topic that I literally started uh, 45 years ago this spring and uh, have kind of lived with ever since. The J.C. in J.C. Nichols stands for Jesse Clyde. He was born on a farm in rural Johnson County near modern-day Olathe, Kansas in 1880. His dad was politically active, involved in the populist movement of the era. That's, you know, kind of the economic environment that J.C. grew up in. He became, very honestly, you know, the, the ultimate capitalist. But his father was pretty decidedly a, uh, a cooperative guy. Bill says from an early age, J.C. was involved with commerce in various forms. Through high school, he'd take a wagon of milk, eggs, and other farm products to the city market downtown to sell to dealers. He eventually attended the University of Kansas, where he reported for a newspaper, managed the football team. He was the valedictorian of his class, which helped him get a scholarship to study for a year at Harvard University. After that, he spent some time in the Southwest looking for land to buy, but ultimately made his way back to Kansas City. He married his high school sweetheart, Jesse Miller, who came from an affluent family of bankers. And J.C. joined up with some old frat friends to establish a real estate company. His first local property endeavor was buying up and selling property off Quindaro Boulevard in Kansas City, Kansas. A most unlikely place for a real estate mogul to have had his beginnings. But yeah, that's, that's where he got started uh, back in 1903. Can you kind of paint a picture for what the area that is now the plaza looked like before J.C. Nichols came along? The plaza area before J.C. Nichols was kind of a swampy creek bed because Brush Creek meandered through it. Brush Creek was usually carried not very much water, um, but it could become a roaring uh, almost mountain stream if we got a really heavy rain. 
Beyond this swampy, floody creek bed, there was also a brick factory and just a few houses. It was the southernmost part of the city's boundary around the early 1900s when J.C. Nichols and other real estate developers like Hugh Ward, George Law, and William Rockhill Nelson were developing and buying up land in this southern area to sell to folks so they would build houses in these newly designed neighborhoods. It was an era of a housing boom in Kansas City, where more wealthy people were moving from the center of cities to the outskirts of town, establishing new, more upscale communities. Inspired and pushed by his competitors, in 1908, Nichols announced in the Kansas City Star his 1,000 acres restricted, an area of land that would come to be known as the Mission Hills neighborhood on the Kansas side and parts of the Brookside neighborhood on the Missouri side. There were no zoning restrictions during this era, so no rules in that regard. And this was all a newer concept, so the possibilities were wide open. J.C. Nichols was a true architect of suburbia and suburban ideals. He encouraged landscape designs that would attract more birds to neighborhoods to help make them more beautiful. He believed in this idea of planning for permanence and for, quote, protecting his neighborhoods through creating homeowners associations that would help enforce certain ideals that would help keep property values high. This would also be a key problem with Nichols' vision. Spots in these neighborhoods were exclusively offered to only white affluent buyers and explicitly excluded African-Americans and Jewish people. But we'll go more into that later. Nichols' early developments also included smaller shopping centers, like the Brookside Shops. There had already been a trend across the city for small retail spots along streetcar lines. But the idea for the plaza was a much larger, controlled concept, unlike anything that had ever been attempted. Bill Worley believes the idea was inspired by a trip that Nichols took to Baltimore in 1913. That's when he saw the Roland Park Shopping Center— which was a strip of shops built exclusively for the Roland Park neighborhood, which was an upper-class streetcar suburb. It was a development that was coincidentally created by another Kansas City-born builder, Edward Boughton, whom Nichols visited on that trip. I don't think Nichols had had really uh, thought about the way in which he could make money, uh, (laughs) capture a second level of income, if you will, off of his sale of land for houses until he had visited Boughton and seen that set of shops in in Baltimore. Newly inspired, Nichols' vision for a bigger shopping destination crystallized into a plan to transform that swamp bed property along Brush Creek. Those parcels had funnily enough already been named the Country Club Plaza by Nichols' real estate competitor, George Law. He had used that name Country Club to make it seem more appealing in the newspaper ads he was using to attract out-of-town buyers. As it turned out, nobody in Kansas City, or at least very few people in Kansas City, were uh, unwise enough uh, to to buy those lots in the floodplain, which was Brush Creek. And so uh, what that meant was that when Nichols in 1913 began to put together the ideas that became the plaza, uh, he had to buy all that land back. And he hired a uh, salesman by the name of George Turtolo, who then he put on the train and gave him a list with addresses of the people who were the registered homeowner or registered landowners uh, in the Country Club Plaza subdivision. 
And of course, uh, Turtolo didn't indicate he was working for a realtor. Uh, he just went around and visited these folks and says, well, look, you know, I understand you own some land in Kansas City that's not really worth much. Um, you know, how about I take it off your hands? And that's actually the pitch that brought the land that became the Country Club Plaza um, into the hands of the Nichols Company. While Turtolo acquired the land, Nichols started working with architect Edward Bueller Delk to develop a design for the buildings, that distinctive Moorish revival style common in Seville, Spain. The tile roofs, ornamental features, some fountains, sculptures, enclosed courtyards, patios. The design included wide sidewalks and street designs that would accommodate a relatively new invention. Nichols was planning from the get-go to attract a, a clientele that was going to be arriving significantly by automobile. This was a key component of his development vision, that this exclusive shopping destination would serve specifically nearby residents, mostly white affluent people who he believed would be arriving by car. He en encouraged um, essentially new businesses to form that would particularly cater to the needs of a residential suburban population, which was the Country Club District. And by 1922, uh, the Country Club District district had, was fully established, frankly, as the elite you know, residential area of uh, Kansas City. On April 30th, 1922, which is considered the plaza's birthday, Nichols announced in the Kansas City Star that a new shopping center was on the way. But it still took another year for shops to officially open. When it was announced, were there haters? <laughs> well, the, the, the joke that Nichols liked to tell that people called it Nichols Folly. Now, there was opposition, and it was mostly from a predictable source. That opposition was from downtown merchants, who rather quickly saw this as a um, you know, potential competitor. It was a risk. At the time, the area around the plaza wasn't that dense. It was still four miles away from Kansas City's downtown, sitting on the very edge of the trolley lines. And it's the scope of the project that, that really makes it stand out. He was proposing that there would be literally, initially, dozens of stores or shops uh, of varying kinds uh, that would be, uh, you know, gathered together in this one spot. But the other key part of Nichols' vision was generating and controlling that clientele of people who would be the patrons of the plaza. And he did that in the way that he sold off the land he owned surrounding the plaza. He didn't have the capital to do it himself, uh, but he, he sold it to folks who could raise the capital to, to build those uh, apartments. He wanted a captive audience for the plaza. He wanted people who would you know, bring business uh, to the plaza, and it worked. In the 1920s, uh, by the time we get to the middle 1920s, there are four grocery stores on the plaza, including a Wolferman's and uh, at least a couple of uh, Piggly Wiggly's. Just a few years into the plaza's life in 1925, Charles Pitrat, a maintenance guy who worked for the Nichols Company his whole life, hung a single strand of colored light bulbs above what is now the Mill Creek Building on 47th Street and started a Kansas City holiday lighting tradition. It's officially the holiday season in Kansas City, and the lights are now on at the Country Club Plaza. Within the plaza's first decades, 
it survived the Great Depression, World War II. And during that trying and pivotal era, J.C. Nichols was a busy guy. He was involved in multiple real estate ventures. He also helped raise the funds and acquire the property for the Liberty Memorial. He helped promote Missouri River navigation. He was an early leader for the Nelson Atkins Museum, the Kansas City Art Institute, the Music Conservatory, and the Midwest Research Institute. Bill Worley says he was a highly energetic person who believed that what was good for Kansas City was good for J.C. Nichols. Nichols was keeping four cigarettes going at one time. He was a great pacer, apparently, and he would think and talk as he paced. And he would pace around the desk. And when one cigarette went out, he would literally light it, you know, light the next one with the the last ashes. Beyond being a chain smoker, an addiction that later led to his death, Nichols also struggled with mental health. J.C. Nichols was uh, at least borderline what we would today call bipolar. But one of the things about being bipolar is that at one level, when you're up, you're up. It's, it's like the old song. When you're up, you're up. And when you're down, you're down. Nichols had tremendous energy. And then there would be times where he would just literally fall into a depth of depression. Bill Worley says family was also super important to J.C. Nichols. He had three kids, Eleanor, Miller, and Clyde, and lots of grandkids. What do you know about, like, what kind of guy was he? What did he like to do for fun or, like... <laughs> What he liked to do for fun was visit the areas that he had developed. Nichols loved on Sunday afternoons to go out and drive through the neighborhoods. Now, of course, he would use those occasions to make notes of situations. We're talking about fun here? (laughs) For him, it was. First of all, what you have to understand, the context of this is J.C. Nichols was a control freak. Okay? He wanted to have things his way and under his control as much as possible. And yet he was in an enterprise in which uh, the whole point is for people to own their own property and be, you know, the the masters of their own castle, if you will. Now, there's a conflict there. <laughs> and, and, and so Nichols, Nichols used all of his persuasive powers, which were considerable, uh, to uh, influence people who... Otherwise, they had no obligation to him whatsoever because they bought their, their land and this sort of thing and their houses. But he would, he would drive the neighborhoods. And if he saw, for example, a garage door up or if he could see out in the backyard clothes on a clothesline, uh, he would write him a letter and say, guess what I saw last Sunday uh, as I was driving through your beautiful neighborhood. And, <laughs> and, and, and these kinds of things. It's the kind of thing that to many of us, seems over the top. There's no, no question. Uh, on the other hand, there are letters, many letters, uh, where people are saying, oh, oh, thank you for reminding me. I'm sorry that I had my garage door up, or I'm sorry that my wife was doing laundry on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> all those kinds of things. And uh, for the most part, he got his way. By the time J.C. Nichols died in 1950, at age 69, Kansas City had changed into a thriving metropolitan city with parks, sprawling neighborhoods. And Nichols' real estate practices and suburban design and shopping experiences were emulated across the country, for better and in significant ways for worse. J.C. Nichols skewed the development and growth of Kansas City, Missouri by concentrating uh, most of the wealth of the city in his residential neighborhoods. 
Bill Worley is talking about J.C. Nichols' use of restrictive covenants, which is also known as redlining, which denied the sale, lease, or rental of properties to African-Americans, Jews, and lower-income people. It created a ripple effect of inequality and racist practices that unfortunately still exist today. Bill Worley notes that Nichols did actually take out the restrictions for Jewish people as early as 1919, but that it wasn't necessarily a point Nichols made widely public. Now, this isn't to say Nichols was the only one or the first person to be doing this type of business. Exclusionary racist real estate and banking practices were very common during this time. But the fallout of J.C. Nichols' role within Kansas City has been a divisive point of pain for many, many people. It's very important to understand, I think, that J.C. Nichols is concerned first and foremost about property values. Are the results of his position racist? Absolutely. But what is involved here is that what he's doing is to support what is absolutely, for a large portion of the American population, the most acceptable thing you can do, which is to protect your investment. I'm not here to justify that. I'm just simply saying that that's, that's what the motivation is. As Bill Worley said earlier, J.C. Nichols was the ultimate capitalist. His restrictive covenant model was essentially adopted by the United States government and used across the nation for decades. And other real estate moguls of other exclusive blossoming communities followed suit, leading to more segregation, inequality, and a gap in equity and resources and basic rights for minorities trying to tap into the real estate world and build generational wealth. In 1948, a Supreme Court case, Shelley v. Kramer, made enforcing covenants illegal. But because of the practical difficulty in enforcing this, covenants would go on to be practiced well beyond that court date. Which gets to that big reason why the plaza has been such a source of tension and protest in Kansas City, a place of confronting hard truths about the past and about having important conversations about what should change and what the future could be like. But not just because of J.C. Nichols' hand in shaping neighborhoods, but also in how that racism played out on the Country Club Plaza. For black folks in Kansas City, the plaza was a symbol of white elitism. It wasn't that they couldn't go in the stores and shop. It was that they were very clear that they were really not welcome. Uh, And this was done in all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways. Bill Worley believes the 1968 riots that broke out after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which was 18 years after J.C. Nichols' death, were a tipping point. In Kansas City, marches started off peacefully, but a decision to keep schools open set off three days of intense riots that left six black people dead and hundreds injured or jailed. Property damage across the city reached into the millions of dollars. There were tanks, National Guard tanks brought in to sit on the east side of the plaza to basically keep uh, folks out. Uh, black folks out of the plaza at that time. Um, this is not subtle. This is this is absolutely in-your-face kind of thing. I think that's the, the point at which symbolically the plaza became in the minds of a lot of black folks and some white folks a, a symbol of racial discrimination, of uh, class discrimination, uh, you name it. George Floyd! George Floyd!
Anyone who lived here in 2020 remembers the tense protests that went on night after night as people gathered at the plaza's Mill Creek Park. Just as it has long been a gathering place to protest or support all kinds of causes, the plaza became Kansas City's site for racial reckoning in response to the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. Floyd's murder and the response to it sparked a lot of new conversations about confronting inequalities and racism in America, about who gets celebrated and why, and how we confront the harder parts about our past. Which gets us back to J.C. Nichols. For me, J.C. Nichols, it popped right into my head. In 2020, Chris Good was a member of Kansas City's Parks Board. Because here we are protesting, you know, a black man being murdered senselessly uh, for no reason at all than, other than being black. And the cries are being uh, portrayed right on the, the, the hills of the Country Club Plaza, um, right along this street that's named after this man that uh, wouldn't even want us to be in proximity of that place where we're marching. Um, and it was just an obvious you know, opportunity for me to say, you know, enough of that is enough. Nichols' name and legacy had been in the hot seat before 2020. We don't need to remember their names. We know what they did, and we can see the effects. Chico Sierra had started an online campaign to have J.C. Nichols Parkway renamed to Dr. Martin Luther King Drive. I think it's important to, like, take down, you know, these statues of, like, racist leaders, change street names. Great. That's great. I think it's, as, like, symbolism, that's an awesome thing. But, like, if that's all we're doing, then it doesn't mean much if we're not trying to change the country we are now. Since then, Nichols' name has been taken down from that street sign. It's now named Mill Creek Parkway. On the heels of the 2020 protests, Chris Good also started the groundwork for renaming what had been known as the J.C. Nichols Fountain. The fountain was originally gifted by Nichols' three children to the city as a memorial to their father. But Chris Good and others were calling for Nichols' name to be removed. We were met with much resistance. There was this notion that Removing J.C. Nichols' name from the parkway and the fountain would sanitize history. Um, It's something that we heard a lot. Chris engaged in open dialogue sessions across the city, talking about the other side of Nichols' legacy. But in the end, because of the way we organized and the way we made sure that we got a a widespread voice of Kansas City, not just from one audience, um, it was a resounding Yes, it's time to remove this name. Even Kay Callison, J.C. Nichols' granddaughter, and Miller Nichols' daughter, who's with the Miller Nichols Charitable Foundation, issued a statement saying, Kansas City, the Nichols family stands with you. At the time, I think everyone felt this is the right thing to do, and I did too. When uh, J.C. was, he died, I was only seven, so I would have had no knowledge of any of this. We can only live in today, we can't live in the past, and we can't live in the future. And that brings us back to the future of the plaza. Because beyond how its founder is celebrated and or criticized, it is still Kansas City's premier shopping and dining destination. But as it stands at the century mark, holding on to that claim seems a little uncertain. Things have changed so much. What are the big changes? It's a lot more trendy now. Uh, I think you're trying to appeal to the youth, which is great. I do miss the old... People came here for uh, the fountains and the statuary and to have coffee at the little sidewalk cafe, those kinds of things. And now it's Starbucks and, you know, the other side of that. 
What store are we in? Archive on the Plaza. We are a retail boutique. Okay, so yeah, there's a sign out front that says friends don't let friends shop at chain stores. So can you tell me a little bit about why you wrote that? I think it works well. We're kind of surrounded by like chain stores everywhere and we aren't a chain store. We're a, a, a company founded in Kansas City by people from Kansas City. In its first 100 years, the plaza has survived civil unrest, natural disasters like flooding, and an ever-changing social and economic climate, the dawn of a digital era. This idea about what the plaza should be, who it's really for, and who should own it, is what our other intern, Jacob Martin, set out to explore. Because a lot has changed, and there are looming possibilities out there that could change it even more. I don't know, me and my girlfriend have like conversations back and forth of like, man, we need trash bags. Jacob actually lives in an apartment off the plaza and has his own critiques. We wish there was something on the plaza, like a corner store or, you know, just something, just something where we could easily run out and just grab it really fast. But that doesn't exist. Um, As you know, there's a lot of retail down there. So we often joke like we need milk, for example. It's like we can't get that, but we can get like a diamond necklace at like Kate Spade or something. So, yeah. Um. (laughs) Okay, so there's like three sources of tension that are all happening all at once that leave the plaza's future in this precarious place. So one, this issue of historic preservation, besides a building height limit, which is a city ordinance of 45 feet high, there isn't any sort of outside national designation that protects the historical nature of the plaza. To the issue of corporate ownership and the amount of space that's sitting vacant right now, the plaza is owned by two of the biggest mall retailers in the country, Macerich and Tubman, who seem to be more into attracting bigger corporate retailers, which can be both good and bad for local retailers. And then three, encroaching developers on the outskirts of what you might call like the plaza proper, who want to cash in on the plaza's appeal, but tear down historic structures. The most recent example would be this issue around this church on 47th Street. Yeah, so the church is the 7th Street Church of Christ scientist. It's right on like the outer exterior. It's been on there since 42. So it's been like 80 years it's been down there. And it's really, if you walk by it, like it's really, um, it's really cool architecture. Essentially a new developer out of Overland Park wants to come in and demolish the church and build a, um, a multi-level entertainment slash restaurant slash fitness center in its place. And that has raised a lot of concerns. You don't have to stop development on the plaza to protect the character of the historic part of the plaza. So I talked to a historian, um, Vicki Notice, and she was able to break down why this is such a big deal. Its neighbors are are upset about this as well, because not only are you taking away this historical church, but there's also um, problems with the development exceeding height requirements that are uh, important to the characteristics of the plaza. All of that is there to protect the history and character of a unique part of Kansas City that the rest of the country recognizes as a unique part of Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And that if we're all in this together with neighborhoods, property owners, and developers in the city, that um, 
it's entirely possible to work together to do all those things. So this Drake development is from Overland Park, and I feel like they they have a vision of like reinventing the plaza. Um, but then that causes this conversation of like, well, you need to keep, you need to stay true to the historic nature of it and the characteristics, but you also need to invent it because people aren't happy with the situation that's at now, where it's at now. So the situation as it is now, there are a lot of vacancies and big time retailers that keep pulling out. And just to recap the history of the ownership of the plaza, it was first owned by the Nichols Company up until 1998. Then it merged with Highwood Properties out of North Carolina. And then it was sold to the current owners, Todman Center and Mace Rich Company, in 2016 for $660 million, which is no small amount. Jacob also talked to plaza business owners like Tanisha Matches of Matches Boutique. African-Americans have been waiting for this moment, you know. She is a black female business owner on the plaza, which there are a few um, minority-owned businesses on the plaza. She talked about the problem with J.C. Nichols and the clause that uh, he put in real estate down there and how, you know, People still remember that, especially black people still remember that. She expressed that, but she also brought up how younger kids come in and they feel like they have a place, um, which was really cool. So when they come down here and they finally see it, I get people that are almost in tears, like, because they knew about the clause or they knew about the truce divide. And so just to see it happen in their generation, you know, it just really kind of touches them. We do have a lot of challenges with the size of the buildings, the maintenance, the sewer system. A lot of that work has been started. Tyler Enders is the owner of Maiden KC. The unique thing about the management groups at the plaza, the two ownership groups at the plaza, is that they do have a national or international footprint, and so they do have really phenomenal connections. He was interesting to talk to because he is a young entrepreneur. So for the Kansas City consumer, or for someone who comes to Kansas City to shop the plaza, I do think they're gonna get a lot of first to market concepts and concepts that are only here and not anywhere else in Kansas City and sometimes not anywhere else in the Midwest. So that's, that's something that's super exciting and I do think benefits uh, the local shopper. Out of the 140 businesses on the plaza, only 35 are locally owned. And there's a reason for that. In order for small businesses to stay on the plaza, they can't pay for these massive leases that these corporations can. Like like Made in KC can't pay the same same rent as Nike. So what Talman's and Maestrich does is they they rent out to these smaller businesses on a cheaper rent, and that's a temporary lease. Um, that usually lasts, I think, was quoted as like a year or like 18 months. So um, at the end of that, lease, then their rent gets bumped up. So that's why you see uh, sort of the cycle of local businesses that are coming on the plaza only for temporary, like, you know, a year or a year and a half, and then they're leaving because they can't pay this bump in rent. That is really interesting, because especially when you think about, like, this hope for there to be more local on the plaza, it kind of sets it up that that's not really maybe, there's always, it's designed to have some local, yeah, but so, not be totally local. Exactly. I should mention that KCUR did reach out to Tom Min and Mace Rich and the local plaza management group, but no one was really willing to comment on future development plans. But as it stands now, they're hoping to bring in something big to the area. The church issue is still TBD, but 
There was a large swath of buildings that were demolished, like where the movie theater and other shops used to be. And there supposed to be something big coming in there. Last talks were Nordstrom's, but they've since backed out. So at the end of this whole conversation, you know, there's still this massive empty lot that's just sitting down there. It's fenced off. The people that I spoke to, the, the business owners and employees that worked around that area, all expressed a um, just something to go in there. They essentially said, like, it would drive foot traffic. It would be great for us. It would bring more people down here. When I asked them a follow-up question, you know, like, what does that mean? It's like, well, we're kind of used to all these changes. It's just kind of part of of the way that we've gone about the past three or four years of just, you know, rolling with the punches. And it's kind of part of being down on the plaza. Okay, your thoughts. What do you think the plaza is going to look like in 20 years? Man, uh, Amazon warehouse, uh, soccer stadium, an airport, maybe. I don't know. Uh, now, are these things you want or just things you... <laughs> these are just thoughts that I've had since I've been covering this story. Okay, what about, what do you think the plaza will look like in another hundred years? In a hundred years, uh, spaceships? No. I don't know. I mean, in a hundred years... It's hard to imagine what Kansas City will look like in 100 years, but I think the plaza will sort of reflect what's happening in the world in 100 years. I think it'll still be around. It might have a different format than just retail. Oh, I think it'll still be there and even better. It's got a different design so that it's an enduring design. It's a sense of permanence. It's a sense of pride that people take when they go there. They show people, oh, we've got this sculpture here, the white sidewalks. I don't know, in the context of human history, it's not that long that it's been there, you know what I mean? Well, I think there is a distinct possibility that it'll be there. I have a feeling it's going that the mix of shops is going to be fairly significantly different. If I had to guess, I would say that probably even more entertainment venues. I think the plastic is going to look more like life. You're going to see more small businesses, more black businesses, you know, more just, I mean, more of everybody, basically. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode was reported and produced by me, Suzanne Hogan, with a major assist from KCUR's amazing spring interns, Jacob Martin and Hannah Bailey, with editing by Barb Shelley and Mackenzie Martin. Krista Henthorne does all of our artwork, music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to the State Historical Society of Missouri, who is the home of the J.C. Nichols Scrapbook Collection, and all of the Kansas City folks who talked to us about the plaza. You heard in appearance Greg Bierman, Anthony Madison, Misa Rasik, Patrice Bierman, Nancy Pell, Charles DeVoe, Brian Peters, Lauren Jones, Kathleen Colombo, Brian Haney, Chloe Creech, Amy Schmiemeyer, and Maria Slippich. For more PHKC content, head to kcur.org slash peopleshistory, or you can follow us on Twitter at PHKCpod. Next episode. He wanted to have an opportunity for black boys. Hot with the three jams, Kansas City's number one for hip-hop and R&B. It is your boy, Playmaker. <laughs> the story behind the nation's longest-running black-owned radio company, whose home, yes, is in Kansas City, the Carter Broadcast Group. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening. 